This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone once again. Welcome to the program. Philosophy has had a lot to say down the ages about freedom and what freedom entails. But in addition to that, philosophy is often presented as a form of freedom in and of itself, the life of the mind, available to anyone and everyone, regardless of their material circumstances. If we're able to have control over our own thoughts and we're able to act in accordance with the true and the good, then we are, in a very important sense, free. So that's the concept, but how does it play out for people who are, in another very important sense, not free? People, for example, who are incarcerated in the prison system. That's a question in which today's guest is professionally and personally invested. Andy West lives in London, where he works for the Philosophy Foundation. That's a charitable organisation devoted to opening the world of philosophical inquiry to people who are not normally exposed to that world. Since 2016, Andy has been teaching philosophy in prisons, and he has a recent book out titled The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family and philosophy. And the book traces the various conversations and philosophical issues that prison existence throws up for the inmates, but it's also a reflection on the impact of having had a close personal connection to prison life. Andy's father, uncle and brother have all spent time inside. Here's Andy West talking with producer Laura Delimpio. I'd always thought that philosophy was somehow incredibly relevant to prison. You know, questions about freedom, whether it's more important to be physically free or free in your mind, mean a lot if you're discussing them with people who are banged up for 23 hours a day. Uh, Questions about time, whether time is an objective thing in the universe or a subjective thing that we create and maybe can manipulate. When you're discussing that question with people who are doing 99-year prison sentences, the temperature on these already interesting questions goes up a bit, I think, in a prison setting. And of course, there's a personal reason uh, why I'm drawn to prisons in that I have a horse in the race in that my uh, dad, brother and uncle were all in prison. So having visited prison from such a young age, growing up in a house where prison stories were shared for comic value, it's always been a big part of my imagination. In the open chapter, despite your familiarity with these prison stories, you actually set the scene by explaining about an expectation that you had before starting your first class, um, a perhaps unstated concern that maybe the prisoners would find philosophy difficult. You mention your mantra about keeping it simple and you note that you know a lot of prisoners haven't completed high school. Um, but this assumption is challenged in the, the very first class. And I was wondering uh, if you could explain that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my family background was kind of East End of London, very working class. Lots of people didn't finish school. Um, family caught up in kind of uh, drugs and like a lot of petty crime, and kind of non-residential burglaries and stuff like that. So that was my idea of who was in prison. Um, but I started out in a high security prison with people often doing very heavy sentences and people who've been in the system for like 20 years. And that is a different world. It's a different personality. It's a different ecosystem. And it was, it was a great learning experience for me that really there's, there's no such thing as the prison or the prisoner. There are only different prisons and different prisoners. And there are some prisons I go into that really do match the kind of profile that my family had, uh, you know, London local jails and such. But there's also places which are very new to me still. 
Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how some of those conversations, the prisoners had read some philosophy texts and were bringing in some incredible literary and philosophical examples to the discussion. I know it was so embarrassing because there <laughs> I was saying, you know, uh, we've got to really strip this down. I was, I was thinking of my dad when I was writing the lesson plan and I just sort of, could he understand this? Could he understand this? And I was sort of putting more and more red lines through my lesson plan. And then, you know, I meet this group of people who are actually saying, oh yeah, that's quite like Rousseau. And actually, I don't think Locke said that exactly. Um, so yeah, I sort of got found out on the first day. Well, that's brilliant though, because, you know, you were humble enough to adjust. And again, the teacher's role in this is you have to adjust depending on your audience, depending on the group, the dynamic, the, the class levels. And I actually was thinking that, that that's quite difficult when you've got such a mixed range of abilities uh, in a group as well and trying to have a dialogue that includes everyone when they are at such different places, not just educationally, but in their experiences in the world and their moods as well. Yeah, um, that's the prison classroom, you know, people with PhDs and people who can't read and write. And, you know, there's a unity to the group just, I think, through often the shared experience of being inside, which can somehow support conversation, even if the levels are really different. Right. And you mentioned that you thought uh, philosophy was particularly well suited to be taught in prisons, in part because these important universal themes and questions, the heat is dialed up, as you say, that they're, they're more immediately relevant to the prisoners. Is there any other reasons why you think philosophy is well suited to be taught in prisons? I suppose because the sort of conditions in prison are so antithetical to the kind of conditions you have in a philosophy classroom in that your identity is stripped away, you're, you, you know, you're a number rather than a name. We don't talk about dinner time in prison, we talk about feeding. It's the language of cattle, really. And it's this environment in which your sort of inner world is... Uh, can just sort of disappear. And in philosophy, you get the chance to express that in a world, to, to find out what you really think about stuff. And I had a prison officer, I was walking down the landing recently, and a prison officer pulled me to the side and he said, um, can I come into your class? And I thought, oh, what does he want to do that for? Is he sort of, is he trying to obtain information on one of the prisoners or something? And he, I sort of said, why? And he said, well, I'm just so curious to know what they think, what they say, the things they say. And um, that was really powerful for me, you know, because he's got a keychain on his waist and he locks these men up every night. You know, locking up 1,300 people every night is, it's a very sort of, sort of strange industrial sort of warehouse existence. Um, so to then be curious about the kind of, the subjectivity that, that of these people, it felt like a, it was very heartening to hear that. One of the things that strikes me is when I was reading the book is that you don't shy away from the big themes. And I love this. And I think, you know, I love this about philosophy anyway. Um, but for instance, there are themes about freedom, suicide, forgiveness. You discuss Sisyphus who rolls the rock up the mountain every day for only for it to roll back down again. You discuss Boethius who is imprisoned and seeking solace from lady philosophy. Uh, and you start one lesson with a quote from Socrates that says, philosophy is preparation for death. Um, and I know that these themes are universal, but I was wondering if you think that they resonate in particular ways with the prisoners. 
I think they do. Um, questions about forgiveness to people who have done something that's caused someone harm. And often, you know, a lot of people in prison are there because of, you know, having had a very difficult start in life or whatever. And so there's there's the harms that they've suffered as well. I think I think that's always a really evocative question. A lot of the themes I discuss are themes I'm interested in because of the kind of background I had. So Boethius and Lady Philosophy and luck, you know, the, the question of luck and moral luck and what it means to be lucky or not. You know, my brother was in prison 12 times and I've only ever been to prison with a keychain on my pocket. You know, what makes that difference? Is it merit? Is it luck? Um, how much of ourselves are we responsible for uh, and how much of it is incidental, serendipity, that kind of stuff. Another one is um, gallows humour. You know, I, I grew up around a lot, hearing a lot of very kind of dark, violent stories that would make my stomach churn, but also make me throw my head back and laugh at the same time. And I've always had this question in relation to my family, which was then kind of triggered again by going into prison of gallows humour. Is it, is it helping us survive or is it slowly killing us? Um, so a lot of the things I discuss in the book, those big topics, a lot of it comes out of, you know, visiting prisons when I was six and, and what that did to my, my mind and, and then sort of finding these preoccupations later on in life in philosophy and then kind of taking them back into prison now. You draw upon Greek mythology and literature and philosophy. And do you think it is philosophy that is a natural home for the discussion of things like life, death, freedom, forgiveness, luck? You know, we could be just sharing a story at, or having a conversation without being a philosophy teacher, but this is the medium you use. Yes. I mean, part of the reason I love philosophy is because I just think it's one of the most interesting ways to have a conversation about things. In a prison setting, I think philosophy is really valuable, actually, for talking about these things, because a lot of um, programs that are about rehabilitation and things require the confession of guilt in order to partake. Um, so people have to kind of admit what they've done in order to do a certain program. And there are many people who don't want to do that, uh, maybe because they're on appeal, or maybe they are guilty in their own mind, but not of what the courts say they are. Maybe I'm guilty, but, or whatever. Whereas I feel like in philosophy, you're always talking about things that are of such kind of relevance to any kind of good life, you know, if you're talking about consequentialism or moral responsibility or what does hope mean and is it a medicine or poison, that kind of thing. And so I think it gives people in that setting a kind of oblique way to think about their situation, both of confinement, psychological survival, but also of crime and perpetration and things like that. There's a wide range of responses from the prisoners to your provocations. And sometimes I think the responses that are offered perhaps aren't what we'd expect or anticipate. And maybe this happens in classrooms all the time, but it really did strike me when I was reading the dialogues in the book. And I was wondering whether you find facilitating philosophical dialogue in this way, particularly in this setting, surprising. Yes, sometimes, you know, I've had prisoners who are like ferocious autodidacts and will come at a philosophical problem with... Uh, a really honed sense of logic. Um, I've had other prisoners who I talk about in the book who uh, express their disagreement with a philosopher by standing up and 
going out and taking a shit and letting us all know that's what they're going to do. Do they? It was, uh, it was with Sam. I was explaining this idea from Sam Harris and there was this one um, student I had, Terry, who just wasn't on board with Sam Harris about, <laughs> his, his, <laughs> about his view on uh, lying and honesty. And he, oh, wow. and he just sort of said, I think, I think I'm going to go and take a shit. <laughs> And it just, it was almost like something from Diogenes or something. It's like, you know, performance instead of argument. But I'm always surprised, I think, because people often relate it to their experience, uh, a philosophical problem, and often their experiences are very extreme or sometimes absurd, you know, in that setting. I mean, of all the philosophy classes I've taught in all the different settings, prison is where there's the most laughter in the room. And when I was writing the book, I was sort of thinking you know, what do I do with this? Is this just sort of, does this laughter, does it just sort of undermine the whole philosophical investigation? But very often I, I find it more revealing. You know, um, the American writer George Saunders has this lovely line where he says, um, humour is when you're told the truth slightly quicker than you're prepared for. And I often found it was, it was in the moments of kind of bathos and laughter that we actually got some revelation philosophically. And I think... Um, Humor allows you to be in two places at once, you know, in a way, if you're, if you're being ironic, let's say, um, which is something that's important to both prisoners and philosophers, I think. Prisoners are, uh, you know, uh, inescapably in prison, but it, you come to a philosophy class to kind of escape that or transcend that momentarily. And then philosophers, you know, are always in a sort of uh, dual mindset on things. So I, I think humor is really important, actually, in the book and in my classes. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone and a conversation with Andy West. He's the author of The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family and philosophy. And Andy West is speaking with Laura Delimpio. One of the things I particularly like is how you explain and evoke the community of inquiry. So the community of inquiry is the pedagogical method favoured by practitioners of philosophy for children. It usually involves seating participants in an inward facing circle and the teacher becomes the facilitator of a discussion. One of the things that struck me when I was reading the book is how facilitating these community of inquiries is really hard. And I could see that sometimes they flow and the conversation is is moving along and then other times it's like pushing a rock up a hill <laughs> it's uh you know stilted or people go off on tangents or maybe the dynamic in the community of inquiry might not be enough trust to really be able to open up and share your ideas in that way that the community of inquiry is designed to encourage yeah so as I feel like you, you give snippets and insights into these different kinds of experiences, but I think you illustrate how hard work it is to facilitate these conversations. Yes. Um, so there's a chapter in the book called Trust where we discuss the frog and the scorpion story, a story about a scorpion who asks a frog to take him across the river and the frog you know, has a funny feeling about this, but the scorpion says, well, I promise not to sting you. Uh, if I were to sting you, then we would both drown and uh, we'd both die and I don't want that. And so the frog thinks, well, that makes sense and wants to do the right thing and takes a scorpion across the river. But when he's halfway, the scorpion stings him. 
And the frog says, why did you do that? And I will both die. And the scorpion says, I couldn't help it. It's my nature. Um, I told a group of prisoners that, and almost all of them blamed the frog for what had happened. And I thought that was so indicative of the setting that it's such a kind of Hobbesian, nasty, brutish and short environment prison that it really falls on the individual to protect themselves, to trust nobody, to not be gullible. And if you fail to do that, it's sort of your fault if, you know, someone steals your stuff from your cell or attacks you or exploits you in some way. Um, that the world is just full of scorpions. And if you haven't learned that, then that's the moral failing. And I found that so, so painful. And there was one guy in the class who had been in and out a lot, had just come back uh, very recently. And he was the only one sort of saying, no, it's the scorpion's fault here. And the frog is not to blame. And if we blame the frog, then we're never going to have any sort of um, kindness in the world. And I, I found that his ability to just stick his neck out there was testament to the fact that we must be getting somewhere as a group of people having a conversation because that would be such a, a naive, stupid thing to say in prison. But he was, he was taking a risk in kind of supporting the frog. <laughs> and we, we had a long discussion about that, which we have in the book. So sometimes it's just things like that. It's those tiny things that just suggest that the culture in prison, the, the kind of survivalist kind of Hobbesian culture has just been just doubted for a second. That's when it felt like we were in a community of inquiry. You also open up and share with the reader that you have an uneasy relationship and familiarity with prisons because of your family history. And I was wondering if you were interested in saying a little bit more about how that did affect your decision to want to work in prisons. Yeah, um, I suppose that, you know, there was, I had so many different things drawing me towards prison as a kid in terms of, you know, visiting my brother inside and the, really not wanting to sort of forget about him. And so always sort of always being aware that on the other side of that wall, there were, there were people. And then I think when my father went away when I was 12, the, the kind of the residue after that initial relief of him going away was a feeling of kind of inherited guilt, a kind of Kafkaesque, wildly irrational paranoia that I had committed a crime. I didn't know what it was yet. Maybe I hadn't committed it yet, but surely one day I would and that I would have the same fate. So in the book, there's a kind of working through of that relationship with inherited guilt and that fatalism, I suppose. I became really interested in Kafka and Joseph Kay in the trial who, you know, just sort of has accepted that fate from the very first page of the book. He's told he has to go to a trial and he goes there. He, he doesn't know what he's guilty of. He doesn't know who these officials are, but he just goes there. And sort of contrasting that with the philosophers who seem to find images that break from fate that, you know, uh, Lucretius talking about the swerve of an atom, that, you know, everything is, everything follows its trajectory, but you get these kind of swerves and, uh, you know, any physicist or uh, philosopher working on free will and determinism will tell you that that's um, having your cake and eating it. But, you know, I, I was very interested in the beauty of that image, I suppose, that, you know, what if Joseph K had been able to swerve or, or turn in another direction? 
what would have happened to the story then? I think that's really interesting. And the emphasis on philosophy as something that is practiced, that is done, it ties to the teaching style, the community of inquiry, and this self-reflectiveness that I think you merge those things um, while also separating them out, but you show how there's a connection there um, in this way of living one's life in in the style of a philosophy, which is almost quite Eastern really and, and quite Socratic. And I was wondering again, just if you think that that's important, the work that philosophy can do or that we can use it for rather than sort of just a set of I don't know, theories and knowledge? Is it something about the doing of philosophy that resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, there are many great works of philosophy, most of them that are written from a kind of disinterested perspective and a lot of great analysis can happen when you sort of leave yourself at the door. I didn't have that choice, I think, with this subject. You know, I had so much skin in the game. I couldn't not tell this story from a first-person perspective and hopefully that offers a bit more emotional depth to some of the abstract ideas in the book I hope I also think the setting does that you know it's so there's two things happening to philosophy in this book one is I'm coming at it from a, a very non-disinterested perspective and I'm sort of it's more of a confession if you like and the other is it's all held within a setting and you know normally you know in, in the sort of Platonic mode of philosophy we, we deal in the realm of pure abstraction, but what what if we're dealing with an actual building, a building of confinement, a building that has a certain culture, a certain smell, uh, where there's rats in the corner, where there's a lot of people from poor backgrounds, uh, people who grew up in care, people who are victims of racism and various other kinds of discrimination. What do these ideas mean in that setting? So there's no shade on the kind of, for me, on the kind of you know, academic mode of philosophy, but I was really interested in just embodying uh, these ideas as much as possible in, in, in a personal story and in a setting. I think you do that so well. I think it is very, you know, you feel like you're drawn into that world when you're reading the story and it's so visceral. And the idea that philosophy is for everyone is something that is really important to me as well. And so I, I love that, that resonates throughout the work. And I feel that you've taught these prisoners so many different things. And so I'm wondering, this might be a fairly obvious question, but has teaching prisoners philosophy taught you something in return? Do you think you've learnt as well? Yes, I have. I mean, sometimes I'll work with someone who, you know, they've been in prison for 20 years and... Um, they still do, you know, 200 sit-ups in the morning and they still read every day and they still come to class and they focus on the conversation. And there's something about that fortitude that's incredibly humbling. And I think what a lot of long-term prisoners have done is take a different perspective on time. They're thinking about time here and now, but they're also thinking about it over a 20, 30-year period. And I often find that a lot of the anxieties we have in everyday life on the outside are perhaps because we're so concerned with how things are now. And maybe we don't have that sort of, as Marcus Aurelius called it, the view from above, where we sort of see time or the landscape we're in just from a slightly higher, more sort of panning out kind of position. Um, so that's, that's, I think, 
one of the things I've been taught in my classroom. Yeah, that's lovely. The will it, will this matter so much in a hundred years? That perspective that exactly. can anxiety. Yes, yeah. really interesting. I was just wondering. Finally, can you tell us uh, about the next book you're working on, and will philosophy feature in it? I think um, this book is about. It's called the Life Inside, and it, it's about confinement and it's about the human soul in extremis, a, a kind of emotional, spiritual extremis. And it's not a lot about crime. Uh, and yet there's so much, so much leftover material and thoughts and impressions that I have from writing this book. And one is um, redemption, this question of redemption, people who've done things that have caused harm, that have led to their sort of exile or castigation and shame, what do they do? How do they, how do they find a way back? Um, and if they can't find a way back, how do they live in that situation? I feel like our conversations are evolving very quickly at the moment about what's morally acceptable and what's not. And I think in, in many ways that's so overdue. But maybe there's a, a lagging conversation, which is about for people who have done something wrong, where do we go with that? What would redemption mean in today's world? You know, it's such a Abrahamic kind of Christian idea in so many ways. You know, often if you if you read Augustine or Martin Luther or something, there's a sense in which redemption is connected to the transcendent. And in a secular age, can you still have redemption? I suppose is is a question I'm looking at. So it's very much like this book. It's about people's stories. It sort of grows philosophy from the ground up rather than pure conceptual analysis, understanding how people live and, and, and what kind of thoughts and reflections we can have about that. That sounds so interesting because I think you're right. We're very good at moral outrage. And in some senses, this is moving in the right direction that we're more attuned to moral wrongdoing or potential harm. But in the world of social media, the amplification of that voice is such a heavy burden to bear and it is disconnected from the individual. And I worry about how that person, as you say, returns the forgiveness, the once they've recognised that they've done something wrong, how do they rejoin the community? Yes, yeah. And I suppose um, for me, having family in prison, I, I had a sort of, it was a very particular experience in that I, you know, I was close to the people who had been exiled, who had been pushed out of the community. So although they'd been pushed out of the mainstream community, they hadn't been pushed out of, out of my own world. And so, you know, I, I was always acutely aware of the harms of castigation and where that took people often into darker and darker places. And if people feel ashamed of who they are, then they sometimes tend to do more and more shameful things. Um, so I feel like I sort of want to build on that experience um, and that insight. And, and like you say, in the age of social media, it's, it gamifies condemnation, but it doesn't really reward those processes which are come afterwards, which are about the sort of repair. So I'd like to write a book that, that looks at that. Andy West speaking there with producer Laura Delimpio. His book is The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family and philosophy. And you'll find publication details on our website. That's The Philosopher's Zone and you can follow us via the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Listener.